welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. The water crisis in Flint, Michigan began in 2014 when the city attempted to save costs in the face of economic and demographic decline by switching from Detroit system to treating and distributing its own water supply. By August of that year, Flint's water supply was contaminated with bacteria in excess of Safe Drinking Water Act limits. By December, the city's misguided treatment of the bacteria had generated unlawful levels of trihalomethanes, a disinfection byproduct. By February 2015, Flint consumers reported lead levels far exceeding regulatory limits, a result of the city's failure to use corrosion control. I'm Hunter Jones, Associate Editor for ELI's flagship publication, The Environmental Law Reporter. Today, I'll be talking with Madeline Kane, a JD candidate at Harvard Law School, who posits in a recently published article in ELR that drinking water contamination, like that which occurred in Flint, is neither isolated nor a primarily urban problem, but rather is impacting thousands of smaller communities that share Flint's risk factors of shrinking populations, social marginalization, and deficient funds. Welcome, Madeline. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To start things off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to write this article? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a second year law student at Harvard Law School, and I'm interested in governance and inequality. Um, in past lives, I got my master's in public administration from New York University's Wagner School of Public Service, and I was focused on economic development, um, largely in rural and international communities. So I worked in technology at Google for about five years and worked on projects like bringing Wi-Fi to refugee camps in Greece. Uh, and then I, my interest turned back to the United States. So I lived in Alabama for a couple of years working for the Equal Justice Initiative. And that's where I learned, learned about water inequality for the first time. Um, I met a woman named Catherine Flowers, who's a rural organizer in Alabama's Black Belt. And her work is around the inequities in in uh, water infrastructure in rural minority communities. And in particular, she works on uh, water sanitation equity. So for this paper, I was interested in whether the same inequities and challenges were present for drinking water that I learned about um, in Alabama relating to water sanitation. And so I started speaking to activists and scientists in the South and learned that this is actually a, a national problem, uh, despite the fact that we've had a really strong safe drinking water law for the last 50 years. In the article, you argue that the Safe Drinking Water Act's increasingly decentralized monitoring and funding scheme have drained small communities of the capacity to deliver safe water. Can you talk a little bit about the history of monitoring and funding under the Act and how that's changed? Yeah, absolutely. So I think to back up before the Safe Drinking Water Act of 1974, it's helpful to know how what the context was uh, that led up to the passage of the Act. So up through the 20th century, community water systems had sprung up in rural areas, largely as diffuse and unregulated utilities. Um, they were really just efforts that, of communities getting together to build common water treatment and distribution systems in really ingenious ways. And there was a sense that when your town built a water system, it had really arrived. So these were um, the pride of many small communities. Um, but they also weren't really on the government's radar. They were very much local projects. 
And uh, a lot of times the people managing these water systems had limited expertise in water quality science and public health and civil engineering. Um, so they weren't equipped to con confront some of the complex challenges that emerged in the 20th century. So by the 1950s and 60s, some of these water systems were incredibly strained. They had pipes that were decades or even a century old. Um, the population in many, many of these communities had grown. The U.S. population had doubled since the turn of the century. Um, some of the lead and copper pipes had begun leaching. There were leaks. Uh, water quality changed too. Industry and big agriculture brought new pollutants that had never been seen before at higher rates. Um, so these small and rather ingenious systems all of a sudden were ill-equipped to handle modern problems. And by the 1970s, Thanks to the, the focus on environmental quality, the federal government decided to pass the Safe Drinking Water Act. So the SDWA was enacted to address these pretty alarming deficiencies in our public water systems. And it enabled EPA at the top to set federal drinking water standards. And then it had a decentralized scheme so that regional and then state authorities could monitor compliance. Um, and on the front lines were these local water systems that were supposed to comply with the regulations, conduct regular testing for water quality for a host of contaminants, and do treat problems to prevent any violations that could harm public health. Uh, and also to regularly notify the public of the water quality, whether it was good or bad. So the, for the first time, there were mandatory steps and there were penalties for systems that violated the requirements. But Congress never intended these water systems to be left to comply on their own. So when it passed the SDWA, it included billions of dollars in annual grants to the states that they would distribute out to all of the water systems and assist those that were struggling and needed pipe upgrades or needed to hire an expert uh, or need better testing equipment. Unfortunately, this program worked for a while, but the grants later came on fire during the Reagan administration. There was just a sense that the biggest problems had already been solved. Um, the, those that were left behind um, perhaps were in communities that had less political power. And of course, there was just a general uh, turn against big government. And so the belief emerged that the states, not the federal government, should be tasked with funding water. So over time, those billions of dollars and tens of billions in grants have all been wiped, all but uh, been wiped out. They've been uh, almost completely replaced with loans. So today, there's a safe drinking water revolving loan fund. And that fund lends out money to states uh, that can distribute it to the neediest systems um, that need to make those same upgrades as, as before, or replace uh, lead pipes, fix leaks, acquire testing equipment. But the big difference is that the funding is about a quarter of what it was in the 1970s, and it's now almost all in the form of loans that must be paid back. Um, so uh, there's a crisis here because need is at an all-time high. Water systems are breaking under the strain of growing population and long neglected structural issues and unprecedented levels of pollution and new emerging pollutants. 
Um, but at the same time, they are less able than ever before to pay back a loan. And so uh, the smallest systems often are actually ineligible for federal funding because they can't prove that they could ever pay a loan back. So with each passing year, the need grows greater, Congress allocates less, and at this point, experts generally agree that there's between one half and one trillion dollars in unmet need over the next 20 years to fix our water system. And unfortunately, there's just a few billion in loans available each year, most of it totally out of reach for the smallest systems. And uh, the current administration, administration has repeatedly called to further slash that funding. So the problem for small water systems is especially dire, and I try to think of it as a two-part problem, one of viability and visibility. So viability is their difficulty in making ends meet, and visibility is the fact that even that funding which is available um, doesn't, doesn't seem to uh, take cognizance of the special problems uh, that small systems have in even accessing uh, federal funding and the attention that they are due. You've already talked about this a little bit, um, but could you possibly talk in, in any more detail about how this federal underinvestment is particularly impacting these smaller systems? Yeah, absolutely. So smaller water systems, and in particular in the article I focus on those that are in marginalized, poorer, and more isolated communities are the hardest hit by this gap in fund in, in need uh, with this trillion dollars in unmet need. So those systems have to keep up with the same regulations as every other water system. But as you imagine, as, as you might imagine, it's much harder for smaller systems to do that. And that's for a number of reasons. So for one thing, they collect much less revenue than larger, uh, and especially with respect to um, poorer communities, they collect less revenue than, than richer communities. So um, rate payment is the main driver of revenue for all water systems. When you've got a smaller user base, you're just bringing in less revenue. That means uh, less, uh, fewer dollars that you can set aside for technological upgrades, infrastructure investments, and things like that. Um, secondly, the, the communities that are the focus of my paper are in rural areas in America that are already broke for other reasons. So they're rapidly losing population to the suburbs and to urban areas. And with this outmigration, they're losing businesses where they could collect uh, taxes, sales tax. They're losing uh, property ownership um, for which they could collect property tax. And so they're increasingly just broke, insolvent um, municip municipal governments to begin with. Um, and to make matters worse, small water systems cost more to run. So they suffer from this economies of scale and um, often because they can't afford to hire or can't uh, access it geographically, people with um, the best technological or fin uh, fiscal management expertise, these systems end up making very costly mistakes that they wouldn't have made if they could afford to hire expert management. So they're, the bottom line is that they're, they're facing outsized costs and they're, uh, ability to collect revenue is a lot lower than larger systems. So as a result of all of this, water contamination in these places is at an all-time high. So reported health-based violations of the Safe Drinking Water Act have doubled since the 1980s, and more than 20 million people today get water from contaminated taps 
each year. Small systems are responsible for 86% of those health rate health-related violations that we know of. But in fact, we don't even know the full scope of the problem. We know that many communities with contaminated tap water aren't reporting all of their issues as required, as required under the EPA. Uh, and we know that because just for example, small systems generate 300 times more known monitoring and reporting violations per customer than larger systems. So basically, um, our sense is that as dire as the statistics are regarding current water contamination, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So for this article, just to illustrate the problem, I spoke to activists in, a, in and around a, a community called St. Joseph, Louisiana. It's a small rural minority community, uh, and for over 10 years, the community members had complained they were drawing brown water, discolored water from their taps. Uh, they weren't able to use it to bathe their children or wash their clothes. Uh, but no matter how much they complained to politicians, nothing seemed to change. And then Flint happened, and it was a galvanizing moment for the country. And uh, for the first time, the community of St. Joseph was able to get their water tested by a scientist who concluded that it was contaminated with uh, lead and other, other metals in excess of Safe Drinking Water Act limits. So the problem was that there was no way for this community to self-fund the upgrades that would be needed to get safe water. So in the end, the state of Louisiana was forced to invest upward of $8 million to get the system back on track. And the problem is that at, even though it was a happy ending for St. Joseph, everyone agreed that there are many more communities just in this exact same position in Louisiana alone, uh, let alone in the country. And there's just no uh, current mechanism for funding an overhaul, uh, even if they really need it. So I, uh, you know, bringing, bringing it back to this problem of visibility, the name of my article is Federalism's Blind Spots. And that is because in theory, this decentralized kind of, uh, uh, pyramid-style regime of um, oversight and management of water quality uh, should be the best way to keep attention on even the smaller and harder-to-reach communities. Uh, but unfortunately, there's just been a total breakdown at every level. And so unlike a, a larger city like Flint that eventually got the attention that it was due, there are many, many small communities like St. Joseph that are suffering in silence and um, are just completely forgotten, unable to get the, the attention that they deserve. And based on what we know about water contamination, the consequence will likely be widespread rates of preventable chronic illnesses and even you know, issues like cancer um, that, that uh, result from contamination. What are some of the solutions you suggest to addressing these problems that small systems are facing? Yeah, so the most interesting part of this problem to me is that the most obvious solutions won't be enough. I think that we need a multi-pronged strategy and there's got to be a number of solutions implemented in concert to, uh, to restore access to safe drinking water. So for many environmental problems, uh, the most obvious solution to me is to put, impose strict regulations 
find violators and fund cleanup. And that's more or less what the Safe Drinking Water Act tries to do, but it hasn't been successful because this problem is a little bit more subtle. So here's some of the problems. Number one, finding non-compliant water systems won't work in this context because the biggest violators in these small communities are already on the fiscal brink. And so we don't want to completely put them out of service with a fine. Um, at the same time, indiscriminate funding. So, you know, just putting money into the hands of the neediest, uh, of the operators of the neediest uh, communities isn't necessarily a good idea either because part of the problem is that they are not operating well. And so uh, there's, you know, just continuing to um, subsidize them would it, wouldn't be enough. Um, in St. Joseph, in fact, the town, um, though it had a water crisis on its hands by no fault of its own, the town also was responsible for some pretty serious fiscal mismanagement and uh, the leadership ended up stepping down. It went into a fiscal receivership and all of that mismanagement made the problem a lot worse. So we need a series of interlocking solutions that just get beyond simply funding and finding. Uh, my article and identify six different strategies that I think should be employed. And the first two are key to financial viability. Um, so everyone agrees that smart pricing is necessary to sustain water systems over time. And what that means is charging flexible rates that reflect what people are willing and able to pay um, and help recover costs. But at the same time, don't punish poor people. So oftentimes, uh, rate charges is, is too blunt a tool. Um, people's water is simply shut off if they don't make monthly payments. Um, that's not a good idea. That's not, that doesn't help uh, the system recover costs and it certainly doesn't help achieve public health goals. So instead, it, there needs to be a more nuanced uh, pricing strategy that reflects what people can actually pay and that's graduated for different income levels. Uh, second, Renewed government investment is obviously needed. When we have a situation of mounting need approaching a trillion dollars and our current federal funding consists of uh, loans equaling one quarter in real dollars, the investments made in the 1970s, that's just not going to do it. So we need something on the order of 1970s era grant funding or more to fix the broken infrastructure that we have. And um, I would add that much of that money should go directly to the systems with the greatest need, but states also need funding to be able to conduct the oversight role uh, that they have today, which is much greater than it was in the 1970s, given the rise in the number of regulated contaminants and uh, the increasing complexity of the problem. So my second two strategies are focused on sustainability of these fixes over the medium term. And one is capacity development. So as I said, you know, many water operators in small towns of just a few hundred people don't have the expertise to make complicated decisions about chemical treatments, repairs, rate schedules, and keep up with changing regulatory requirements. So states need to train and equip a core of technologists who can steward these water systems. And um, you know, in, in Louisiana, they've implemented this. States should also consider fiscal experts who know how to um, create 
long-term sustainability for these uh, rate-based utilities. And they should deploy those across small towns to help to uh, restore solvency. Um, relatedly, I think we need to explore regionalization and consolidation of water systems. So regionalization refers to joining together of management and technological resources across communities who couldn't af afford uh, to make discrete investments, but banding together and with the help of states can afford um, to share resources. So regionalization is a great strategy for these small and isolated communities. And consolidation refers to merging adjacent towns into a single integrated treatment and distribution system. It's, it's, not always, uh, it's not always technically possible. It's also, it um, can meet political uh, resistance because water is really about power and control. And so uh, communities don't always want to share management. But, um, you know, states like Alabama have implemented a moratorium on the creation of new small water systems. And that has really helped to restore viability because it just ensured that uh, systems are looking for ways to combine resources and integrate together rather than maintaining hundreds and thousands of discrete systems. So these strategies get at reducing duplication and um, encouraging economies of scale. And then finally, the last two solutions I discuss in the paper are about long-term sustained success. And those strategies are community engagement and enforcement. So community engagement is sounds simple, but it's really critical. And it's uh, something we haven't done effectively to this day. It's just the idea that the people best positioned to alert us of water issues are those who run their taps every day. And uh, yet the people who are facing the deepest water issues in their community are often those who are systematically ignored in our political system. Um, so the Obama administration took some steps to try to solve this problem and they established a uh, environmental justice advisory council and had regular consultations where um, some, of the, some of the points that I raised in the article were raised to government for the first time. But unfortunately, the current administration has basically ignored this group. And um, we've got to just keep the channels open and ensure that the people impacted on a day-to-day -day basis by this problem are heard and can maintain government uh, informed about what solutions will actually work. And then finally, around enforcement, um, even though I think indiscriminate enforcement and fines will only make the problem worse, there's no question that the regulatory scheme has got to be, uh, has got to be better respected um, in order for communities to keep up with the ongoing challenges of uh, water availability and quality that we're likely to continue to encounter. So, in to me, this is all about enabling, uh, but also punishing those states that don't hold their water systems accountable to the standards. In 2011, states were found to have still inaccurately reported about 84% of monitoring violations and 26% of health-based violations to the EPA uh, in violation of the, of the Safe Drinking Water Act. And it's, it's really alarming uh, because 
those monitoring violations, while they might just be something as simple as, um, you know, filling out a form incorrectly, they could represent covering up a very serious water quality problem. And so we have got to turn those numbers around and we've got to, we've got to make it so that um, nine out of 10 of monitoring violations are reported to EPA and not the reverse. That is how we'll ensure um, swift action when a, when a water system is really in trouble. So states are best positioned in my view to identify and solve water issues. And we've got to shore up their ability to do that, but also hold them accountable when they fail to do so. Um, so the good news is that I think um, in, these, um, in these difficult moments that we are facing today, I think there's going to be renewed interest in local issues. I think um, there's enormous attention on public health right now. And so I hope that although this seems like an, uh, a rather abstract problem of infrastructure, financing, and regulation, that folks will begin to see their local water systems as the assets that they once were generations ago when they were built by um, ingenious people to last for generations to come. Madeline, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about your article. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. For more information on the Environmental Law Reporter and to read Madeline's article, please visit our website at www.elr.info. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at eli.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.